This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 52, an entire year as a podcast. Episode 52, entitled The Israelite King and High Human Christology, Part 1. Of course, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations with your friends and family about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. We've spent the last four episodes exploring the evidence for humans bearing a high human status that is very similar to the manner in which Jesus Christ is depicted in the four New Testament Gospels. The figures of Adam, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha were each portrayed within Judaism as human beings highly empowered by the one true God. Humans who often said and did things that are typically reserved for God alone. This was the result of God investing his prerogatives, attributes, and authority into these special human agents, who would therefore perform divine actions not unlike the deeds exercised by the human Messiah, Jesus. The result of these uniquely empowered human agents was not an infringement on Judaism's monotheism, nor an affront on the one true God's rightful position. Rather, Adam, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and even Jesus Christ were depicted as the rightful human agents of the one true God in a manner that authentically represented the true God in a world through humanity. Our next figure that fits into the category of human beings highly empowered by God is the Israelite king. In what appears to be a natural development of Adam's high human status, various Israelite kings are portrayed as representing God and his rule here on earth. Very often we find the Old Testament attributing titles, worship, and deeds that are regularly reserved for God alone to these royal figures indicating that these human beings are authentically representing the one true God as royal agents. The correlation for the New Testament Gospels in their portrayals of Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, bears significant consideration in regard to its Christological contribution. The amount of data available to study the manner in which the Israelite kings are described with a high human status is significant. So this episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will be the first of several to explore these royal figures, beginning with an examination of Psalms 2 and 45. So let's begin. Our first point is looking at the high human status of the Israelite king in Psalm 2. We don't have time to read the entirety of Psalm 2, but I'd like to point out four particular examples within this psalm that closely link Yahweh and the human Israelite king. I'm going to start in Psalm 2 and verse 2, which reads, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2 and verse 2. 
What we see here is that the phrase, taking a stand against Israel's God, is also to take a stand against the king that Israel's God has installed. Functioning as the Adamic image bearer, the Israelite king represents the true God while remaining a royal human being. This close linking of God and the human king continues throughout Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 begins by closely associating that those who are opposed to God are also, by definition, opposed to God's installed human king. The two are linked together and closely associated, God and that Israelite king. Our next passage to look at is in Psalm 2, verse 4, and verses 6 through 7. This pairing of verses reads as, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 4, and verses 6 through 7. What we see in this passage is that God is enthroned in heaven, and the Israelite king is enthroned on God's holy hill, on Mount Zion. In other words, God rules in and through his human royal king. There's a close association with the installation of the Israelite king upon Mount Zion, upon God's holy mountain, and the fact that God sits in the heavens, presumably sitting as enthroned. We also see that the human king bears the royal title, Son of God, on the day of his enthronement. We can see from this passage in 2 and verse 7 that the title of Son, being Son of God, is a title that is given to this Israelite king. The kingly title, Son of God, denotes a fully human Israelite king who heavily embodies God's rule. In other words, to be the royal Son of God is to be someone distinct from the only true God while still acting as God's authorized human agent functioning in a ruling and image-bearing capacity. We also note that the language in Psalm 2 and verse 7 of God becoming the father or begetting this Israelite king deals specifically with the royal title rather than the physical coming into existence of this human king at his birth. This is a really important point that a lot of people miss when they take the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, the birth that is described in the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. And they also see this image of the Son of God that is begotten, or the day that God becomes his father with the Israelite king, while Son of God here is a title, and they confuse those two things, assuming that they are one and the same. They are not. That doesn't mean that one is unimportant and the other is important. It's that both of these realities, one being a physical coming into existence, being natural birth, and the giving of the title that was bestowed upon the Israelite king was something that seemed to occur according to Psalm 2 and verse 6, which says, I have installed my king upon Zion as the time when this human king receives the title Son of God. So in other words, 
verse 6 of Psalm 2 confirms that I have installed my king upon Zion. And verse 7 says, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have become your father. That title, son of God, is in reference to the Israelite king, something that the human king receives upon his enthronement. Our next verse is Psalm 2 and verse 8, which says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 2 and verse 8. In this passage, we note that due to the newly acquired royal title, Son of God, the nations and the ends of the earth are a potential inheritance to be possessed by God's human king. In other words, the close relationship between God and the human king ties in with the rule that God intends to share with his representative human king. This is how Jesus in the Gospels can refer to my kingdom and my father's kingdom while referring to one and the same kingdom because the kingdom of God is something that Jesus inherits naturally as the kingdom's rightfully anointed king. Our last section in Psalm 2 is in verses 11 through 12, which says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. That's Psalm 2, verses 11 through 12. We see in this section is that worship is offered to both the true God and unto the Son of God, the human Israelite king. Granted, there are different Hebrew verbs used to differentiate the type of worship offered to these two individuals, but it is not surprising that homage is offered to both the Israelite king and to the God he represents, since the psalmist already closely linked these two as being opposed by the nations, being enthroned, and linked together with the royal and familial title, Son of God. In sum, it is not surprising that the Israelite king in Psalm 2 appears to be an expansion of the highly empowered human being, Adam. God invests his rule and privileges into the Israelite king. Both figures, being God and the king, are the recipients of cultic worship. And to oppose one is to effectively to oppose them both. And yet, the Israelite king is never confused with the one true God, nor does monotheism get expanded to multiple persons within the Godhead. Yahweh still remains in charge, being the one who enthrones and identifies the human Israelite king as son of God and the one who offers the king his inheritance. It is no surprise that the writers of the New Testament heavily drew upon Psalm 2 in their depictions of Jesus Christ, the King of the Kingdom of God. Our second point is looking at the high human status of the Israelite King in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 has a variety of passages that closely associate Israel's God with the human King. The psalm begins with its title and with its first verse by denoting it as a song of love. And the passage begins by saying, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. That's Psalm 45 and verse 1. 
what we note from this section is that this psalm is clearly given the descriptive title as, quote, a song of love, end quote, along with recording the psalmist's address of this song's verses to the Israelite king. This is highly significant because it is often thought that songs of worship within a monotheistic framework could only be directed to someone who is God. However, the psalm unambiguously orients worship towards the human Israelite king. Of course, Jesus is the object of hymnic worship and praise in Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Revelation chapter 5. So the parallel with Psalm 45 in its depiction of hymnic worship being given to a human being is very relevant for how hymnic worship is offered towards the ultimate human king, Jesus the Messiah, in the New Testament. Our next passage is looking at Psalm 45 and verse 3, which says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. That's Psalm 45 and verse 3. What we note here is that the phrases splendor and majesty are actually attributes of God, according to Psalm 104 and verse 1. Here, in Psalm 45, they are invested in the human king. In other words, the human king is here portrayed as bearing two of God's unique attributes. God has shared his attributes and invested them into a human being, the king that rules on God's behalf. Our next passage is in Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. It reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. That's Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Here we note, very importantly, that it is one of the two rare places in the Hebrew Bible where the Israelite king is called God. The human king ruling on God's behalf and invested with God's attributes is fairly called God here. However, this was not intended to convey that the Israelite king competed with the true God's unique position. For Psalm 45 and verse 7 makes it absolutely clear that the human king still has a God above him being the true God who anointed the human king with oil. Our next section is in Psalm 45 and verse 11, which says that because he is your Lord, bow down to him. Psalm 45 and verse 11. Here we can see that the human king invested with God's attributes and God's name is clearly worthy of worship. In this Psalm, human beings are directed to worship this human Israelite king. And there's no embarrassment with God commanding human beings to worship another human being that is rightfully understood as God's empowered human king. So as we've seen, Psalm 45 depicts a human king with a high human status. This Israelite king is worshipped in this psalm a psalm which opens by calling itself a, quote, song of love, end quote, 
towards the human regent. God shares his attributes and name with the human king, even calling him God, while keeping with the understanding that there is only one true God. There is no embarrassment in Psalm 45 that the human Israelite king is called God, is worshipped, is the recipient of a royal hymn, and shares in God's unique attributes. This is because of the high human status afforded to the Israelite king, a status that complemented monotheism rather than threatening God's oneness and unitary nature. It's now appropriate to move to comparisons with the New Testament. So our third point is looking at depictions within the Gospels of Jesus in light of the Israelite king's high human status. Our brief study of the high human status given to the human Israelite king finds many parallels with the human Jesus in the New Testament, especially within the four New Testament Gospels. Here are some of the noteworthy similarities within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First, we note that opposition to God is closely linked with opposition to God's anointed king, Jesus. We note in Luke chapter 10 that, quote, The one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. That's Luke chapter 10 and verse 16, where Jesus notes that someone who rejects him is also rejecting the one true God who sent Jesus, thereby noting a close linking between Jesus and the one who sent him. We also note something similar in John chapter 5 and verse 23, where Jesus says, quote, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's John 5 and verse 23. Both of those passages note that opposition to God is closely linked to opposition to God's anointed king, just like we demonstrated in Psalm 2 and Psalm 45. Our next point is looking at how God invests his attributes into Jesus. We can see this in Mark chapter 2 where God invests his authority to forgive sins into the human Jesus. Mark 2 and verse 7 begins this passage where it says, Why does this man speak in this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The passage goes on in verse 10 where Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's Mark 2, verses 7 and 10, where you can see that the thought was that God alone possessed the authority to forgive sins, but God has invested this attribute and this authority into Jesus as a human being. We can also see something similar in John 5 and verse 21, where Jesus himself says, quote, For just as the Father raises the dead, and gives him life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's John 5, verse 21. We can see there that God has the authority and the attribute to raise the dead and give life, and so the Son also has the authority to give life to whomever he wishes, sharing that authority and that attribute of the life giver. And in John 5, verses 26 through 27, Jesus says, quote, For just as the Father has life in himself, 
even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. That's John 5, verses 26 to 27, to where the Father, the one true God, has given the attribute of life and the attribute of the judge, the one who has the authority to execute judgment, to the Son. Jesus did not possess these attributes in and of himself. God actually invested these attributes into Jesus. And we can see in our final point that God invests his name into Jesus, calling him God without abandoning monotheism. We can see this here in a lengthy passage starting in John chapter 20 and verse 17 and then ending in verse 28. In 20 and verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. But yet in verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. So there we can see in John 20, and 17, after the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus still has a God, and Jesus calls him my Father and my God. And yet, at the end of the passage, Thomas, seeing that God has invested himself completely in Jesus, Thomas can call Jesus God as God's representative human king. Just like we saw in Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7 where the Israelite king is rightfully called God, and yet he has a God above him. Jesus here is called God, and yet he still has a God above him. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Israelite king, functioning as an extension of Adam's vocation to reign as God's image-bearing representative, bore a high human status in his descriptions within Psalms 2 and 45. The one true God of Israel was closely associated with the human Israelite king, investing his attributes into him and even allowing the earthly regent to be called God. The empowerment of the human Israelite king did not elevate him as a rival God to the one true God. Instead, the Israelite king functioned as God's divinely empowered human being ruling on his behalf. The manner in which God was closely associated with the Israelite king finds numerous parallels within the New Testament, especially in the four Gospels. Like the Old Testament's Israelite king, the Gospels depict the anointed King Jesus as a human being working closely with Israel's God, being one invested with God's attributes and is even called God on one occasion. In other words, the human being, Jesus the King, was understood by his earliest followers in what is appropriately called a high human Christology rather than a member of some plurality within the Godhead. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I also want to give some consideration and a recommendation to the Restitutio podcast. For those listeners who desire longer episodes on a wider variety of biblical topics, 
You can check out the Restitutio podcast at restitutio.org or on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for following us for an entire year of a weekly podcast discussing God's oneness and Jesus' humanity. My name is Dustin Smith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time, you folks take care.